Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord. I have always been intrigued by calendars, clocks, and the reckoning of time. And things are not always what they appear to be. For example, John Wesley celebrated his birthday on two different days, both June 17th and later on, after 1752, when the British finally made the transition from the old Julian to the Gregorian calendar, Wesley then celebrated his birthday on June 28th, usually with some self-congratulatory comment about how good his health was due to the practice of horseback riding and field preaching. <laughs> Indeed, calendars are remarkably diverse things when you start to think about them. There are sports calendars that begin in the fall or in the spring. There are fiscal calendars that start on July 1st. There's our quote, quote, normal calendar that commences on January 1st. And then, of course, there is our beloved academic calendar. <laughs> the beginning of a new school year that takes place right after Labor Day. And so the first thing I want to say to you this morning, although I am about a week late, is Happy New Year. Yes, Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Academic Year. <laughs> when John Wesley thought about calendars and the beginning of a new year on January 1st, he also considered the Christian calendar, yet another reckoning of time. Thinking very broadly about salvation history, from the call of Abraham to the deliverance of the Hebrew people, to the coming of Christ, Wesley situated his own historic moment of being the church in 18th century England against the backdrop of the broad and gracious context of what the Germans called Heilsgeschichte, of God's saving actions in history. Indeed, each one of us here this morning knows something of the grace and the enormous blessing of having our small individual stories caught up in the grand story of God's saving love manifested in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. This gospel is the greatest story that has ever been told or could ever be told. There is no greater story. What a fund of meaning and purpose we enjoy. Beginnings are also occasions of opportunities imagined and of hopes instilled. And Wesley thought so as well, which is why he eventually associated his covenant service with the new year, although he had earlier celebrated such a liturgical event at a much different time of the year, in August, for example. Now, in order to understand the nature of the covenant service that we will take up today as a renewal of our dedication, our consecration to a God of holy love, 
the one who is worthy of all honor, praise, and glory, we must, first of all, consider the many gifts of the Puritan community, especially in terms of its well-worked covenant theology. We have to go back to the 17th century and to the work of the Puritan leader, Richard Aline, who had studied at St. Alban Hall, Oxford. This is the same Richard Aline who was ejected from his pulpit, along with John Wesley's grandfather, John Westley, and that's Westley with a T, and his great-grandfather, Bartholomew Westley, again with a T, when the Crown promulgated the Act of Uniformity in 1662, which required the use of the Book of Common Prayer on Sunday mornings throughout the realm. John Wesley, Bartholomew Wesley, preach here no more. And this is precisely what several Anglican leaders said to John Wesley much later, although for much different reasons. Liturgically gifted in many respects and a borrower just like John Wesley was, Richard Aline composed a number of directions to accompany the form of prayer for entering into covenant with God, a form of prayer that was actually composed by a relative, uh, the younger Joseph Aline. Eventually, in 1663, Richard Aline published his Vindicie Pietatis, or a vindication of godliness in the greater strictness and spirituality of it that contained both the instructions as well as the form of prayer. John Wesley reproduced this larger work in 1753 in his A Christian Library, and he extracted a chapter from it entitled The Application of the Whole. And he then made it the basis of his own covenant service, Unfortunately, Elaine's original covenant service has been lost. However, many scholars today believe that Wesley's own effort, his reworked covenant service, has preserved much of Elaine's content. We know today that John Wesley began the practice of the covenant service as early as 1755. Listen to Wesley's words. On Monday, August 11th, 1755, at six in the evening, we met for that purpose at the French church in Spitalfields. After I had recited the tenor of the covenant proposed in the words of that blessed man, Richard Aline, all the people stood up in token of assent to the number of about 1,800. Such a night I scarce ever knew. Surely the fruit of it shall remain forever. The covenant service was eventually associated by Wesley with the watch night service on New Year's Eve and into the new year, a service that often lasted three, count them, three hours. Don't worry. <laughs> I, I assure you, I assure you that length of time will not be our approach in Estes Chapel today. <laughs> Though there is variance 
<coughs> excuse me, though there is some variance here over time, Wesley most often associated the covenant service with the beginning of the new year. Much later, in 1780, to be exact, Wesley published his directions for renewing our covenant with God and produced a second edition of the work with some modifications the following year. This literary and liturgical production became the basis of the Methodist covenant renewal in England, America, and elsewhere, and it continues to serve as a resource even today as we will see this morning. One curious point, however, that still lingers is that if the work directions for renewing our covenant with God is so important to the Methodist tradition, and I believe it is, then why did John Wesley not see fit to include this liturgical resource in the Sunday service for the Methodists? which was published in 1784 for American use when the Christmas Conference established the Methodist Episcopal Church in America. To be sure, the covenant service has been an important part of British Methodism in a way that has not been fully mirrored in American practice. In order that we may participate in the service this morning rightly, more fully and with heartfelt affection and care, it is eminently helpful to understand something of what the Bible means by covenant. Simply stated, a covenant is an agreement between God and humanity, quote, binding them mutually to undertakings on each other's behalf, end of quote, as G.L. Archer Jr. has pointed out. Covenant is not only the framework through which the Most High blesses humanity with deep and wonderful promises, but it is also the instrument whereby God directs humanity to prudent counsels that represent nothing less than the pathway to its highest good, namely the knowledge and love of God. When we shift to the New Testament context, again, as Archer points out, quote, the biblical language of diatheke, the Greek word for covenant, signifies in a way much more specifically than berit, the Hebrew word, an arrangement made by one party with plenary power that the other party may accept or reject, but cannot alter, end of quote. In other words, God is the sovereign, the gracious giver of the new covenant. The Most High has acted decisively and salvifically in Jesus Christ, even before we are fully aware of the nature and extent of such action. Again, Jesus Christ is clothed with all the promises of the New Testament that are weaved in his blood. The author of the book of Hebrews compares the covenants, the old and the new, to underscore the fullness, the universality, and the perfection of the new. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. 
For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach thy neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Before we specifically consider the major steps of renewing our covenant with God this morning, which Wesley laid out in his directions in 1780, let us be mindful of what God the Father has done for us by the gift of his Son, Jesus Christ. Note that the movement of the New Testament, of the New Covenant, that the author of the book of Hebrews has written about, is not from us to God in some trumped-up sacerdotal priestcraft. No, the direction, the way is decidedly different. It is not from us to God but from God to us. Hear the words of the Gospel of John. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Or consider the words of the first letter of John, chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Again, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3. God presented or gave us Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Put another way, God as revealed in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit is nothing less than a gift giver. We love because he first loved us. The first movement is always by God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Again, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. 
What Paul is teaching here in Romans then is, is very radical. <laughs> that is, God justifies not the righteous, but the ungodly. Not those who clean themselves up first and on that basis will be forgiven. No, God justifies sinners and their faith in Christ is credited as righteousness. This means then that God has acted decisively in Christ. We are already forgiven. Yes, already forgiven in Christ. It is done. And as Christ said on the cross, it is finished. And so it is. God is reconciled. The temple curtain has been torn in two. The way to God is open, wide open, because the atoning blood of Jesus Christ is efficacious for the sins of the whole world, for all people, and all means all. What do we need this morning? What do we lack here today? that God has not already provided. Ah, but we must receive that forgiveness. We must embrace that reconciliation. Yes, yes, indeed. Not even God, as great and powerful as the Most High is, not even the Almighty can do that. But oh, there are so many people today and some of them even in the church. And they woke up this morning with a load of guilt on their backs, and they'll carry it around all day. It will interlace with their thoughts, it'll be evident in their words, and it will crush their heart and their will. And they will go to bed tonight with that same heavy burden still in place. They think, that they are unworthy, that they cannot be forgiven, that what they have done in the past is simply too horrible, so unspeakable, and they therefore inhabit a skeleton-filled prison that rattles the very foundation of their being. Now, this is very serious business indeed. And I am not for a moment making light of the spiritual, emotional, and even existential pain, the recurring dread, the deep remorse, the, the near despair as the dogs of hell through a shaken and anguished conscience rip, plague, and ravage the soul. And yes, things are so bad here, so out of control, so dizzying, that no human being, no human power, other than Jesus Christ, praise his holy name, could ever bring deliverance. Not Moses, not Muhammad, not Lao Tzu, not Krishna, and not the Buddha. As great as they are, they are all a part of the problem. Let's be clear here. They, too, are sinners in need of a Savior. I know. <laughs> I know. 
that in our postmodern, very relativistic, politically correct world today, some people will take offense at the gospel truth. The gospel truth that Jesus Christ himself declared, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I have always found the offense taken in terms of this declaration so very confused and deeply mistaken because it makes a fundamental, not a minor error. Do we realize that this morning? It's a fundamental root radical error. Indeed, it makes a categorical mistake in assuming that Jesus Christ is just like any other human being. No, he's not. Though he is fully human, he is also divine. He is the Word made flesh. Remember the Johannine prologue, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory. He is the only begotten of the Father. He is Emmanuel. He is the resurrection and the life. He is God come to us in order to redeem, in order to set the captives free. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. No other human being can do that. Are there any here this morning who are despised and rejected by former friends and even by family members whose consciences are riven with guilt and pain, who are broken? Then remember that Christ The God-human knows your plight, for he died the death of a common criminal and surrendered himself to the lowest depths of human existence, spanning the gulf of separation between God and humanity. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and descended to the dark depths of Golgotha with its torture, its mocking, and its shame. In Jesus Christ, then, God bridges the distance in love and comes to us. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what the Incarnation is all about. This, indeed, is what the Gospel is all about. Only Jesus Christ reveals a God who is so humble and so lowly that he is willing to get down to our level to meet us in forgiveness and love. Only Jesus Christ displays a God who truly comes to us and is one with us, who identifies with our pain, our sorrow, and our failures. God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For all those who will not forgive themselves, though God has already 
forgiven you. Consider this. Consider this. The shed blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is greater. It is greater than our sin. It is greater than our fear. It is more powerful than our dread. It washes away our guilt and alienation so that we can be restored to friendship. Yes, intimate friendship with God. That blood is unlike all other blood. It is nothing less than a divine fountain for cleansing and healing. That blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross is God come to us in earnestness and deep sacrifice, bearing our burdens, embracing our suffering, and overcoming our alienation. That blood is the holy love of God manifested concretely in forgiveness and reconciliation, and it ushers in sparkling renewal. Think again, think again on the depths to which God, the Most High, the Most Glorious, has descended at Calvary to reach us in holy love. The shed blood of Jesus Christ is greater. It is greater than all our sin. We have not outsinned the grace of God. Our Heavenly Father welcomes home all the prodigal sons and daughters. We have not outsinned the forgiveness of God. Christ invites us all to the great wedding feast, the supper of the Lamb. We have not outsinned the love of God. The Holy Spirit says, come, drink deeply from the unfathomable wells of forgiveness and renewal. And to all those who receive Christ and his benefit, who embrace the blessings and promises of the new covenant, they are free. Free indeed. To enter into covenant with Christ, then, is an invitation to freedom, real freedom, not the phony kind of freedom that the world talks about, but real freedom, freedom from the guilt of sin and from its power as well. Wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty indeed, even the liberty to love and be loved, to love God and our neighbor as ourselves. And so... Let us all this morning be deeply mindful of just how God has come to us in Jesus Christ. Let us then prepare our hearts for entering into covenant with the one who is worthy. He is worthy of our surrender. He is worthy of our submission. And he is the one who will surely bless. Listen then at this time and in this special place to the directions for renewing our covenant with God that John Wesley laid before the Methodist. First, get these three principles fixed in your hearts that things eternal are more considerable than things temporal, that things not seen 
are as certain as the things that are seen, that upon your present choice depends your eternal lot. Second, make your choice. Turn either to the right hand or to the left, both parts before you, with every link of each, Christ with his yoke, his cross, and his crown, or the devil with his wealth, his pleasure, and his curse. And then put yourselves to it. Soul, you see what is before you. What will you do? Which will you have? Either the crown or the curse. Third, embark with Christ. There are two things which must necessarily be supposed in order to a sinner's coming to Christ. One, a deep sense of his sin and misery, Wesley writes. Two, an utter despair of himself and all things besides Christ. Fourth, resign and deliver yourselves up to Christ. Yield yourselves to the Lord, that is, as his servants. Give up the dominion and government of yourselves to Christ. Yield yourselves to the Lord, that you may henceforth be the Lord's. I am thine, saith the psalmist. And lastly, confirm and complete all this by solemn covenant. This covenant I advise you to make, not only in heart, but in word, not only in word, but in writing. May it be written on your hearts to the unsurpassing glory of God the Father, through the love of Jesus Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, now and forevermore. And the people of God said, Amen.